Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce, of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then. The guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
Hello, folks, and welcome back into Next Gen Creators, the Daily Downforce podcast, where we talk about the next generation of NASCAR content creators. I am Joshua Lepowski, once again, here with you, and we have a very special guest coming up with us today on this podcast. Brogbeard is our guest for this one. You may know him for his website, Last Car on Brock. He also has a YouTube channel, Brockbeard, and he's also done some stuff with NASCAR Man History as well. The last car on Brock site has been on the internet for uh, quite a while, and uh, he's he's kind of back, gone back into the YouTube game here over the last few years as well. But uh, his uh, website, Last Car on Brock, has been there uh, for a little while longer. You also uh, might know him for. Uh, writing the uh, biography for uh, J.D. McDuffie and uh, also is uh, in the process of writing Derek Cope's documentary as well. So uh, Brockbeard is someone that uh, is has a very interesting perspective. He loves to highlight uh, last place finishers, as is known for his uh, uh, website, Last Car on Brock. But uh, this interview is going to give you some insight into the reason behind it. It's in no way, and as you can tell from his content, it's in no way to poke too much fun at these people. It really is truly about telling stories, and it really is just um, about you know talking about this part of inside of nascar that oftentimes is uh, not talked about as much by uh, certain people so he talks about some very unique perspectives and he also gives us some insight into kind of just his passion that he has for the site and for what he puts out there so without further ado here is next gen creators with brock beard Hello, folks, and now it's time to welcome in Brock Beard to this episode of Next Gen Creators. I have Brock right here with me over Zoom. And uh, Brock, really great to have you on here today. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, Brock, we'll start here. Tell me, you know, how did you get into NASCAR to start out? Well, uh, good question. You know, I, I live over in Northern California, so not exactly traditionally known as the a uh, hotbed of the sport, um, but uh, I am one of the generation that was brought in by Days of Thunder back when it was originally brought into theaters. Uh, saw it a couple times and was just captivated by it. Uh, that was easily my first exposure, really, to racing in general and definitely to NASCAR. Uh, and I think, in some ways, it kind of set some unrealistic expectations as to what you actually see on TV uh, with uh, the the Hollywood uh, effects of all that. Uh, but that definitely brought me in. And, and then shortly after that, seeing it in person, uh, 1992, I attended my first uh, NASCAR race when I was nine years old at the Sonoma Raceway, or we still call it Sears Point up in this neck of the woods. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just just fell in love with it even more. I mean, the, you had to hear the actual sounds of it. This was during Richard Petty's retirement tour. Uh, first race, seeing Ernie Irvin go from the back to the front. Um, and uh, And I think for particularly from that race and especially in the next couple of years uh really kind of seeing you know how big the fields were and how you had a lot of different drivers you had you had the top names and then you had uh other drivers in the back back then you had winston west guys that ran in nascar and maybe kind of want to know want to know more about those uh those drivers so really kind of from an early uh phase uh i was always very interested in not just uh the big names you know whether it was Earnhardt or davy allison or daryl waltrip or something 
Uh, but yeah, but all these other cars that were in the field, like who are these other drivers and, and, you know, what was, what was their story? Um, and, uh, I think that was really what, what got me going, but, you know, definitely the, uh, I'd say probably the crashes brought me into the sport first <laughs> earliest memory. I remembered was Rick Mass flipping upside down at Talladega in 1991, uh, seeing that on TV. That's probably the first race I actually saw uh, on TV and then the paint schemes too. I just, you know, back then, I mean, so many iconic ones between Earnhardt's and Harry Gantz and so forth. Uh, it, it was at a time that I think it really made it very easy for outsiders to be brought into the sport uh, because, yeah, some so many things stayed the same from one week to the next. And you got to focus on the racecraft of these different tracks. And uh, as Cole Trickle said to Days Thunder, ESPN, the coverage is excellent. And I would have to agree. They were they were the gold standard for me growing up. And uh, even as a West Coast viewer, didn't mind waking up at 930 or you know 10 a.m. for a race over here. It was uh just as much, uh, just as much fun. So yeah, that was, that was the year I grew up in. Bob Jenkins, Ned Jarrett, Benny Parsons in the booth together. I mean, you just, you can't beat that. You, you absolutely can't beat that. I mean, I've rewatched the 1992 Hooters 500 multiple times and man, you, you just can't beat those three in the booth. You're so right about that. And, you know, to provide some context in what you're talking about, people forget in those days, like in the late eighties, early nineties, how many people were lining up to cut or to enter in NASCAR races. I think I saw in uh, in your video you did about the Speed Weeks in 19, uh, 1988, just a few years before, I think there were, what, 70 entries in the Daytona 500 that year? I mean, it was crazy. And even just a couple years after that, there were over 80 entries in the uh, brick first ever Brickyard 400 just two years after in 1994. So, you know, I mean, that era of NASCAR, I mean, there were a lot of people that were just trying to make it just to be in the field in general. Absolutely. I mean, it was it, it would have been... I would have been an absolute hog heaven to uh, be doing what I do now, uh, watch, you know, covering these races, be able to go into the infield and to just uh, just just rub elbows with that many different drivers out there, knowing that they're all trying to make, you know, anywhere from a 36 to a 43 car field back then. Uh, and knowing that a lot of them are going to be DNQs and just and just trying to just take it all in. It must have been so overwhelming for people who were, you know, beat reporters at the time or people who worked for NASCAR scene or uh, anything like that. And yet there's, thankfully there was such great coverage from that time. You can kind of go back and, and really kind of dig up some of those stories. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, in, in I've been covering uh, races in person uh, we're in the garage area at Sears point uh, since 2010. And really at that point, I think even then uh, we had what, I think 47, 48 cars for 43 spots. And that seemed like a lot. So to think of 50, 60, 70, uh, or as you mentioned, even 80 cars, um, that just boggles the mind. No, it absolutely does. And I, I remember kind of when I was growing up and like the because I grew up in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, kind of the COT era. You know, it was it was common to see, you know, you know, close to 50 entries at a race at certain points in in that sense. So, you know, you, you talk about that, how you kind of got into NASCAR growing up and you really were into like uh, kind of kind of the back markers, you know, kind of like the people that, you know, were just trying to make it in the sport kind of in some way. Do you have a favorite like NASCAR movement from these field fillers, I guess, the way because you you have a podcast, Rise of the Field Fillers on your on your channel. So uh, do you have like a favorite NASCAR field filler moment that you had growing up that kind of hooked you to these to these uh, individuals? You know, it's a good question. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different there's a lot of other ones that 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 stand out from different eras. 
Um, you know, and, and, and that's one thing I've always enjoyed about the sport. I mean, I always tell people that this is my soap opera, you know, I don't watch soap operas, but I watch this every week and, you know, you know the cast of characters changes and the story stays the same. It's always uh, somebody new being brought in, but um, for the, the field fillers, I mean, there's, gosh, I mean, there's, there's so many, I mean, I think back to, um, you know, drivers that, I mean, whether it was, I mean, even, even if, weren't, if they weren't necessarily like underfunded drivers, like a lot of the ones in the, uh, the series rise of the field fillers, you mentioned just overlooked, uh, because, you know, you had uh road course specialist that would be in it, especially at Sears point, you get Ron fellows and, and Boris said, uh, you got, uh, Brian Simo qualifying for the 2000, uh, uh, 2008 uh, race at Sears Point in a year old car of tomorrow uh, that out uh, outpaced like three or four unsponsored cars. That one stands out. Um, I remember I wrote a um, it wasn't really a fanfic, but it was almost like a movie parody of like co combining like Die Hard Speed and Days of Thunder. And it was revolving around Steve Kinzer in, in 1995. And uh, I remembered his bad luck that he had driving for Kenny Bernstein's team really stood out and, and how, even though he only ran, I think like 10 or 12 races that season, it left such a huge mark on me that, you know, it, it, I was keeping an eye out for him and kind of hoping that, you know, he would have better runs. Ultimately he stepped back out of the sport. So, you know, ones like that, um, you know, gosh, there were, um, you know, def, you know, definitely over, you know, the more, the more you really kind of learn about the other drivers and you learn about the teams and their history, um, I mean, gosh, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's just entirely too many to count. I think, I think every year I always kind of look out for like which, which team or which driver seems to be having the worst luck, um, and just kind of hoping for them to, you know, pull out. I think this year probably could, it could be argued that maybe Noah Gregson has really had a difficult stretch of luck in the cup series. Uh, the Xfinity series side, you look at like teams like alpha prime that have really kind of had uh, some bad luck. They had one of their cars DNQ today from Michigan. Um, you know, and, and, uh, I, I think, I mean, it's kind of a long answer to your question, but I mean, it's, it's really hard for like one moment to really stand out because when I started thinking of one moment, it reminds me of so many others, uh, over, uh, over the years, whether it was Morgan Shepard working on his own car to get the carburetor off of it at Darlington in 2017, uh, or, um, you know, a, a, I remember when, uh, we had uh, Prism Motorsports was racking up uh, a lot of start and park efforts in 2009, 2010. Uh, one of the first years that I covered uh, racing at Sears Point, um, they brought Dave Blaney out and Michael Waltrip didn't qualify for the race in a fully sponsored Prism entry. And so Blaney actually got to run the full race uh, in, in that one. And that was really unusual because I had covered already, even at that point, seeing the 66 car pull out of the race very early. Um, so things like that. There was always, there's always kind of, um, there's so many little quirks that pop up and that's what, that's, what's fascinating about it is that there, it, it, all this stuff is happening simultaneously with a battle for the lead or a championship battle or winning the Daytona 500 or whatever the biggest story is, but this is also happening at the same time. And, and, and it can, it can alter the way you experience a race, but, uh, it, it can also enhance it in other ways too. Yeah, I remember some of that era you're talking about that, like late 2000s era, early 2010s, where you were seeing these start and park type entries and things like that. And, you know, NASCAR's they've changed the way that I believe it's the way they've allocated prize money to kind of, you know, I guess, take away the or to, I guess, encourage guys to run the full race. Am I, I'm correct in that assumption, right? 
Yeah. The, the, the charter system is the biggest part for the cup series. And yeah, mm-hmm. that the big part of that was definitely a different uh, allocation of um, the purse money, which is one of the reasons they don't actually disclose the purse distribution anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're not one of those 36 teams, um, even, I mean, you know, I heard somewhere, even with Shane and Gisbergen pulling off the win in the Chicago street course that, you know, as an open team, even though it was a, it was a track house entry, it was a non-chartered one uh, that, you know, he made less money in that than you know, had one of his teammates with a charter would have uh, earned if they had won the race, um, which is, which is kind of a shame. Cause you know, you do always, you know, I mean, again, these, these small teams, whether it's the open teams today or, part-time or underfunded efforts in the past. They're always the ones that, you know, you watch and, and uh, kind of hope to see if they have like a better run out there or just see what kind of adversity they're dealing with. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's become so unprofitable for a lot of, uh, you know, small efforts to really get into the cup series. And and I think there's, there's positives and negatives to that as well. Cause I do believe that the Xfinity series is going through a Renaissance right now. I think it's, arguably the most competitive racing we see each weekend because you have past cup talent with pretty good programs. And then you have mid tier programs that have really been able to kind of step up and be able to compete for top 10, sometimes even top fives with those guys. And you're keeping a lot of cup series regulars out of the field at the same time too. Um, It ends up being just really competitive, but a lot of those teams would have been and have been in some cases like Carl Long's team would have been in the uh, cup series uh, just a decade ago, if not even less time than that. Yeah, you're right. It, it's interesting to see in a, in the Xfinity series every weekend. And, and it really truly does feel a lot of times like the way the cup series was back in the day. And even then, like, you know, we've seen as years have gone on, like even like when the charter system first came into play, you would see open teams try to run the full schedule or most of it. And you don't you don't see that anymore. Like, you know, it's if you see an open entry on the schedule, it's very rare. I think. I think there's one. We're recording this the week of the Michigan race. I think there's an open entry for the Michigan race that we're we're right before we're recording this. And obviously Daytona's come or Daytona's right around this time of year too. We'll see some open entries there. But you're right. I mean, we don't we don't see that sort of stuff anymore. So you mentioned kind of how you started covering races at Sears Point in uh, 2010, and you were kind of starting to cover these like, you know, field fillers, back of the pack type of drivers. So you run me through kind of how that came about. Well, kind of a long story, but I'll jump into it. Um, you know, ever um, when I went to college, I I, I, I uh, started college in 2001, graduated in 2005. And back during that time period, I've been into the sport for about a decade. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to be that much interested in the sport because I'll find something else in college that's going to grab my attention. And that'll be something else I'll do. Uh, turns out instead I was kind of getting my friends to get interested in the sport and I was more <laughs> of a fan of the sport uh, than I had ever been by the time I graduated. So the effort was to really try to find something to do with this interest because uh, I knew it was going to be a part of my life. Um, I didn't think it would be entirely, um, you know, a, a, a something uh, all consuming. There's been different degrees of it over the years. Uh, but then that was the effort. So like 2005, 2006, I'm starting to kind of try to figure out what's a good way to do, um, you know, to cover the sport. And I was really kind of just, I tried it from different angles. Um, and as much as I knew that I was interested in the small teams, that wasn't actually the initial focus that I had. I was originally looking at just kind of race reviews in general and practicing, um, you know, writing the deadline. And that was kind of the first challenge. Cause I, 
outside of, you know, projects in school that hadn't really been my focus for creative writing. So I had to kind of practice doing that. Uh, one of the first things I did was I was actually on a, uh, another podcast, racetalkradio.com. Um, and I would actually do musical, uh, race reviews. Uh, now I can't sing a lick, uh, but you know, I, I had fun writing, you know, kind of doing a weird owl thing and kind of changing musical lyrics to race reviews. Um, and I got a gig on this podcast for a couple of years where, you know, I would, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, do it over the phone and then it would be out of sync with the music and it was a mess. So I knew it was like, okay, I can't do this. So let's try something different. So I did that for a couple of years and then I really kind of tried to do a full field rundown race reviews, 2008. Um, I did a, a site called 43 stories. Um, and I would just try to just go through the field to do the finishing order and just have something to say that I would notice from each driver in the field. Uh, and I kind of, my inspiration was Bob Jenkins to say, you know, I would always remember he would do the leaderboard when it would come up. And every time the leaderboard came up, he'd say, Oh, you know, here's a leaderboard, the Fram field summary, check out where your favorite driver's running. And I always liked that because I always figured there would be people that were Dale Earnhardt fans or whatever, but they'd also have fans of maybe the guy that's three laps down in 37th place. And that would, it, it was kind of a fun thought. So I figured, okay, let's do a website where I have something to say about everybody in the field. And if people go to the page, they can, you know, find whatever the story is. Um, it, there were times that, and I don't know if this is a consequence more of the broadcast or just a lack of resourcefulness on my end, because I wasn't really on social media at the time. Um, but you know, the, there would be certain positions that I wouldn't have any notes for, like somebody who finished in 17th place or 23rd, and but the people I always had something to say about was the race winner and the last place finisher. And then that was kind of the eureka moment. So in 2009, um, I started compiling statistics on who had the most last place finishes in NASCAR and um, retooled the same website. What became what was uh, 43 stories became the 43rd story, referencing how many cars were in the field back then. And um, then my brother, uh, who usually prefers stay anonymous on this. So I always call him last bro versus, uh, on that. Um, he helped, uh, he came up with last car and I was like, Oh, it's perfect. And so we jumped on that. And ever since then, the focus of the site has been to update these statistics. At first it was entirely about the statistics and just updating them, but then more and more it progressed into, uh, profiles of the driver who finished in last and then covering the different battles for position at the back of the field. Like what, problems the driver would have and then overcome and then who would climb up the rankings or fall back down the rankings. Um, and then it became like which past drivers that finished last were outperforming and having great runs. And that's kind of where the site has become today. I mean, I've been maintaining it ever since we have two other staff writers, William Saki and Ben Schneider that do the same thing in the Arca series as well as IndyCar and sometimes even other series beyond that. Um, and that's been the fun part. And I think our readers have really enjoyed that. And it's dovetailed into my track site coverage, where now I go over to uh, the races there. I kind of spend the first part of the week kind of watching some of these other small teams and things that happen. And then I try to find a place that I can be at the beginning of the race uh, to see what's happening at the back of the field each lap. And if anybody's coming down pit road and it's a lot of fun. I like to bring everybody into it during my uh, the stuff I do on Twitter at last car on Brock uh, or the uh, uh you know, the post-race live streams I do and, and things of that nature. And it's kind of created kind of its own thing, which is, which is interesting because um, I was thinking about this earlier and kind of getting ready for your show tonight that, um, you know, it used to be, you know, when I was much younger, I could say, 
oh, who won the 1993 fall race at Martinsville? It's like, oh, that was Ernie Irvin, his first start or his first win with uh, Robert Yates racing and all that. Um, but if I were to say who won the spring 2018 race at Martinsville, eh, I have a little harder time of it because my focus, I feel like I get two races in, in one each time and I could focus much more on the last place battle. And then there's sometimes stuff I miss at the front of the field and I have to kind of catch up to at the end. And sometimes like last week at Richmond, perfect example, uh, the last place battle goes wire to wire. Um, mm-hmm. The entire field was separated by five laps, which is completely absurd. I mean, usually you have somebody that goes to the garage area, some mechanical failure, somebody crashes. Um, but Richmond in particular has turned into this where the field is so tight together. Denny Hamlin's been very outspoken about this too. Uh, and I think we saw the most dramatic consequence of it in this last week here where even BJ McLeod, who really had a good weekend going, a good qualifying run, started 21st. Um, you know, he he finished it last, but it's not to say that they were that far off from everybody else. Um, so, um, and those are the things that are fun. I, I was asked once when the start and park teams kind of went away, if it was still relevant to even talk about last place. And this is where I say it is because it's, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. You see like what the strength of the field is and how competitive the races are becoming. I think it's a good measure of that. But again, kind of a long answer to your question, but that's that's kind of the overview there. No, it's perfect. And I think, you know, people, I, I was looking at some stats earlier from some races and I saw, I think it was a race at Dover from like, I think it was the 70s or the 80s where whoever won that race, I forgot who it was, won by seven laps, or maybe it was Bristol. But like the fact that at a track similar size to Richmond, the multiple times guys were winning by multiple laps. Now the last place finisher is only five laps down at the end of it. People don't realize how close that is, considering the fact that guys were winning races by multiple laps at certain times. So it's, it it is incredible. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I was watching Richmond, I was even thinking about that to some extent because I was looking at this and I was like, wow, like, like whoever it was that was in last place, like he's only five laps down. Like that's, that's, that was crazy to me. I don't know how long it would do. When was the last time all 36 drivers finished a race? That had to be the first time in a while. Maybe, maybe it's more common with the next gen, but I don't know. You'd know better than me. When was the last time before then that everybody had finished a race and that it entered? It's a good question with the, it's the first time it's happened with the next gen car. Uh, the last time it happened, I believe, was 2018 at Homestead uh, with Regan Smith at, um, at at the Homestead race, the championship race that Joey Logano won. Um, and what was fascinating with that one is um, Regan Smith, I think he finished 15 or 18 laps down. Uh, it was definitely a wider margin than what we saw here in Richmond last week. Uh, and he actually missed the start of the race. So he very nearly had a did not start and would have had no laps completed at all. Um, but they had a mechanical issue before the start of the race, had to get back out there and then finish everything else and everybody else finished too. So they unfortunately weren't able to climb any other positions. Uh, so it has been a few years. Um, I think there's maybe about a dozen times that the last place finisher was uh, classified as finishing under power, uh, which would be pretty much the only examples of races where the whole field finished under power. I think one of the last points paying races at North Wilkesboro um, was a race that had everybody finish under power. And there had also more recently been actually some other races at Richmond, now that I'm thinking about it, um, as well as some races at New Hampshire um, that had uh, that, which, which is kind of interesting. You kind of wonder if there's similarity, if it's something about a, a three quarters to one mile, relatively flat track um, lending itself to that or not. But um, that's kind of been the trend. So it has happened relatively recently, um, but it is still rare, very rare. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. And and also, you know, another thing that, that strikes me is that you were talking about, you know, telling these stories like you, uh, I, f- I forget what your first blog site was already first to 43rd or, or 43 stories is what it was. And, stories. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, it's, it's interesting how like everybody throughout the field has their own story because personally I was on uh, Brendan Poole's pit box at uh, the Chicago street race a few weeks ago. And oh. it was interesting because like, you know, those, you know, you, you kind of overheard like him talking with his team and how they were talking about like okay like you know we're doing this strategy so we can gain this many positions this is where you're going to be on this lap after everybody else pits and that sort of stuff everybody throughout the field is running their own race they're not necessarily i mean everybody wants to win obviously but they're not necessarily going for the win they're just going for a way to uh just improve their position and finish the best they can. And you highlight a lot of those things. So, you know, in, in light of a lot of that, can you tell me what it was like the first time you went to a race to cover a race, you know, with, uh, um, with the blog that you had at the time? Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I didn't realize, I mean, the first time I ever covered a, a race in person, you know, with the, with this, you know, kind of cross that threshold from, uh, fan to kind of more media. Uh, I was actually working for another website, uh, friendstretch.com. And I was at the time I was actually covering the top 35 battle in points, which allowed me to kind of talk about um, not teams that were necessarily in last place, but ones that were just a few spots up trying to uh, battle for provisional spots. Um, and so I went in with that angle. Um, and, um, you know, one thing, uh, one thing I learned from that first year is just, there's so much stuff going on that, you know, and, but you have a lot of latitude to kind of custom make your own experience. Like, you know, that the drivers are most accessible on the first day of the weekend. Uh, and then from there, you're kind of focusing much more on the stats and what's happening in the races and so forth. So the first year I just, I did this under the last car banner was 2014, um, I was, uh, I was studying in law school before that. And that's a whole other story. So that's why there's a kind of a few year gap there. Um, but, um, I, um, but yeah, 2014. So luckily I had that background of, of at least doing it once before and knowing where things were. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, I think I've always had kind of an eye towards the back of the grid and curiosity of like what the small team sponsors are going to look like. Um, you know, what teams even show up to the track. I mean, kind of, you know, I, I still feature that in my entry list articles I do each week. Um, so it, it, I think it, it it didn't feel like so much a conscious decision to make sure I'm doing this and not that. It was much more like, okay, let's see who's here. And then you, and you kind of have people you're kind of watching to begin with. And then the practice results come in, you know, who's kind of the slower part of the field. So if they're not among the ones you're watching, you kind of watch them too. Um, and then it kind of builds momentum from there. Um, and, uh, and I think it took a while, I think it took a while to really, well, actually, I think, I think probably the bigger adjustment to be perfectly honest has been like what, what to wear and like what to bring with me. Um, because like, you know, I, I used to have like a fanny pack that I would bring like, you know, my scanner and stuff like that in. Uh, and then I had to try different things, but then I found I was, I was holding things all the time. So I got like a vest that has pockets on it and try to figure out stuff like that because the tricky part is, is, is being able to juggle what's happening. What's that, what you're seeing on the track, what you're hearing from the broadcast, uh, what you're hearing from track officials, because they're going to confirm whether or not somebody's out of the race or going to the garage area. Um, and then just running from one spot to the other to catch somebody, you know, that's over by the haulers or anything like that. Um, I think that's been more the challenge is like, how can I make sure that even if, cause I mean, when you're in the garage area, 
um, you know, at, at the start of a race, and you probably saw this, you know, where you were with uh, with Pool's team, you know, the the garage area at the start of a race is just is just dead quiet. Like there's no there's nobody in there. There's nothing happening. Um, and you can you could be completely separated from what's happening on the racetrack. Um, you know, and and if so, if you're you know, so that's why I try to kind of catch stuff trackside there to at least see the start of the race. Um, but then, you know, the, the further along the race goes, especially if you have some accidents, mechanical failures, it gets real busy and really crazy. And they're real fast. You got people going in and out of there. You got crews throwing everything around. Um, and a lot of that doesn't get shown. You don't usually see it on TV, which is, I think, another reason that I think our readers have really enjoyed uh, the site is I try to really kind of catch as much of that uh, that's happening. Serious point, the Xfinity race this year in particular um, I don't know how well it showed on TV because I still haven't watched the full broadcast of it. Uh, but pit uh, the garage area was just wild of that one. I actually had to jump out of the way to not get hit by Anthony Alfredo as he came in there with the <laughs> backup car. Um, but that's but that's part of the excitement. Um, so I think um, it's 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 knowing where you need to be and and knowing that when you're looking at one thing and where you are. You know, you're going to catch that one thing, but, you know, you're also at the same time missing other stuff that's happening out there. But I've always had pretty good faith in other media members that are there to cover the race win or to, um, you know, if it, if it or even if a big name driver finishes in last place um, when that happens, it's usually, you know, a whole lot more people there. Um, that was kind of the interesting thing on the Cup Series side at Series Point this year when Denny Hamlin got in his wreck. Um, there were only two people there. It was myself. And um, I, I believe it was somebody else from front stretch. Um, and that was it. Um, and if we weren't there, we were, you know, there weren't going to be uh, any quotes from them there in the, in the, in the broadcast. And uh, so, you know, that's just how, but that's the kind of stuff that's, uh, that I think is fascinating. So I've always tried to kind of look where people aren't looking. Um, it's not been a hundred percent successful because sometimes, you know, I've, I mean, I covered the all-star race at Texas in 2021 and that was another race where nobody fell out. So I didn't hardly spend any time in the garage area. I was just on pit road for a little bit. And then I'm like, Oh wait, I'm gonna have to be here the whole time. Cause uh, the last place changed at the last second when again, it was, it turned out to be Danny Hamlin. I guess I'm his black cat when it comes to this <laughs> He came down pit road at the last second. Cause he wanted, had to get some lug nuts tied because he didn't want to get a, a, a team a crew suspension. Um, but, uh, but again, another thing that wasn't shown on TV um, so just, just trying to capture those little moments and I'm not the only one that does it. There's a lot of other people for their media outlets that do, um, a fantastic job, um, you know, on social media and so forth, um, to, uh, to cover it there. But with mine, as well as my other staff writers, you know, we really try to keep that focus as much as possible. And then, you know, if usually when it's settled early in the race, we kind of use the latter part of the race to kind of, um, then join in with everybody else and kind of follow the battle for the lead. Uh, because you'll know when you when you hear from the officials, like when, you know, nobody else is going to be taking over last place unless you get a disqualification, which happens too. <laughs> well, disqualifications happen more often nowadays than, the, than they have in the past. So, you know, that's that's apps, you know, that's absolutely true. It's I'm certain that's got to be interesting. Like when you're highlighting, you know, you mentioned the garage area being the way that it is. You're absolutely right. The beginning of the race, the garage area is dead quiet. But, um, you know, pit road, I'll tell you, pit roads, organized chaos. I've learned that too. Um, pit roads, organized chaos, but, uh, you know, you also discussed as you were answering your question there, you discussed how you went to law school for a, for a brief period of time. So what, what, what happened there? <laughs> oh yeah, certainly. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there's actually a, um, there's an article, sadly, it's not up anymore because NASCAR.com, uh, laid off their writers, but, uh, back in 2010, I was interviewed, 
by uh, Mark Allman, who is a veteran writer there on the site. And there's a, the headline was law student tracks battle for last place. Uh, Cause that was back when I was, I think it was my second year of law school, but uh, my father's an attorney. Um, I grew up in, uh, you know, a, a attorney's uh, household here. And, and, and the goal from the beginning, I think for both my brother and myself was to one day go into law school and at least try that out just because it's the family business, just like Kyle Petty was with, uh, with Richard Petty. You know, I think that, um, you know, you, you, you're the son of a farmer, son of a race car driver, you know, you try to go into the same thing, uh, simply because, you know, yeah, you, you have that background and you think, uh, it could, it could certainly be of help. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and mine was, uh, more the case of the latter. Uh, but it was, uh, but I, um, yeah, I, I went into college. I studied English, uh, but I always enjoyed creative writing, uh, which I think has been another source of my, you know, um, I mean, so there's certainly a lot of creative writing involved in, in doing the website there. Um, but, um, you know, I always believed, you know, that, you know, going into law school is like another outlet for, you know, kind of creative writing and, and, you know, I always like research and history and there's a lot of aspect of that. And I had some really interesting classes I actually received. Um, I studied at uh, John F. Kennedy law school in Pleasant Hill. Sadly, the campus isn't around anymore. They got merged into somebody else and uh, there was something there, but it was a very blue collar campus there. Uh, had, had some great classmates. Um, I studied there from 2008 to 2011, uh, got my Juris doctor. So I do have that degree um, I took the bar exam, California bar exam, three uh, consecutive times, did not pass it, came the closest on my second. I was 16 points off on that. Um, and uh, at that point, I was just burnt out. Um, I, you know, and, and I'm a Bills fan, so I know it happens the fourth time. Um, so, uh, you know, it was um, but it was a worthwhile experience. And I, and I, I, you know, I think one thing that I a couple of things I learned from my experience in that. Uh, first of all, getting a greater appreciation for what my father's uh, job does. I've always had a better a better understanding of that. Um, but also, you know, I I really enjoy research. I re, I there's um, doing what's called a statement of facts when you're trying to break down, a, you know, trying to just establish the elements of a case, and you can kind of make it persuasive at the same time while you're describing it. I feel like there's still a tinge of that whenever I write a script for a video or an article that if I want to make it persuasive or if I want to make it, you know, a, a person that's in it more sympathetic, I do feel like that still kind of stayed in there. And I also feel like it, it really helped kind of tighten up my writing. I look at a lot of stuff that I wrote in college and it's, um, it's just, it's like, I wouldn't publish it now. It's like, it's too dense and just kind of all over the place. Um, and I feel like after in law school, you have to write very efficiently. Um, and it helped out with that. Now it, it was not planned to be just a writing course, um, but I'm, I'm a big advocate and my, and my family is very much of this too. Um, you take what you take, what helps you and, you know, just stick with that. And that was the case. Um, but, um, and the other part of it too, is all that, that I was describing with the last car site and that coming up, um, the last car site basically started like, right, like right at the start of my second of my third year in law school. So I think it did become a bit of a distraction there. And while I felt that I could do both, um, that was a bit too much. Uh, so we decided to kind of go that direction, uh, but very happy. I did. My family has been very supportive of that. Um, you know, I'm glad to have had that background. I, again, I think it's helped my writing and, and I still use a lot of those skills today. Um, and, and I think it's, 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 it narrowed my focus a bit more in how I wanted to approach the site. Cause I think that's, I think that's a big thing with the last car site that, 
um, maybe people don't understand is like, I think maybe if it, it ended up in somebody else's hands, it probably would have ended up being like a satire site or like a joke site and just say, Oh, look at this loser. Like, you know, this is terrible. They could even get this pit stop. Right. And all that. It could have, it could have gone that direction. Um, but you know, while I do think that, you know, there is some humor that's inherent in the sport and I do still get a laugh, you know, when I describe, you know, the site to people that aren't familiar with it. Um, you know, there's also, you know, I, I, I try to really, treat these drivers and teams with respect as much as possible there to understand, um, you know, what, what they're dealing with and, you know, nobody wants to finish in last place, um, you know, uh, you know, and there's, and, you know, um, I think one of the big reasons for that was JD McDuffie, uh, who I uh, was the subject of the first book I wrote because he had the most last place finishes at the time I started the site. And uh, the fact that his final last place finish was the one that cost him his life at Watkins Glen in 1991, um, that definitely colored things differently uh, when I was compiling the statistics. And I think that kind of, I think the other moment that definitely narrowed the focus of the site was the loss of Jason Leffler in 2013, uh, where he had finished last at Pocono a couple of days before. That was really the turning point that encouraged me to kind of really expand on the articles and not just update the statistics which I had even with Leffler's article that week. Um, there was a little bit more detail in there, but I, 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 it's really kind of set the mission statement uh, this last decade to really kind of chronicle these stories. And hopefully other people find that interesting too, much like I find it interesting reading these old stories and in, in Grand National Scene or you know old newspaper clippings too. At least that's my hope. Um, but uh, again, kind of a long answer to your question, but uh, I definitely took the scenic route to get where I am now. Man, dude, you, you have passion. That's that's the biggest thing. You have passion for your field, dude. You know, go on, go crazy. That's all we care about is that you have a passion. And you obviously do. And, you know, again, it just goes back to everybody has a story. You know, I mean, part of the philosophy I have with this podcast is everybody has a story. And, you know, you're you're highlighting that, too, with these last place finishers in NASCAR. Every one of these people, they're all human beings that all have stories. They're they're trying to make it in the sport one way or another. And, you know, at some point, a lot of these race teams were at one point they were these guys guys that were finishing in last three or four laps down that were getting passed by guys. I mean, think about like front row motorsports is a great example of this. At one point they were start starting parking. What? Like maybe like 15, 13, 14 years ago, not, not that long ago. And nowadays, you know, Michael McDowell is in position to make the playoffs on points and they've won a few races. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of, to kind of see that. So I, I guess this leads me to, to, to this. Have you ever seen anybody that like you started covering that was, that you were usually covering sometimes in those last place finish battles that you've seen the work their way up as time's gone on or what's, what's kind of the coolest story you've seen with that the rags oh. to riches of NASCAR, if you will. That's a very good question. You know, the, the current, I, I, my mind immediately goes to the Xfinity series and a lot of these drivers that are developing into part-time efforts. Uh, Ryan Ellis comes to mind, especially with the news today of him getting the full-time ride for alpha prime next year. I mean, that's fantastic for him. Um, you know, I remember, you know, we, you know, uh, a lot, especially now with social media being what it is. And as much as I'm not a big fan of Twitter and, and so forth on there, I think it, it in the racing context, uh, it's been great in terms of following drivers up the ranks, much like you're describing, um, you know, uh, he, you know, there's, there's, there's a few of these drivers that, um, yeah. And, and I don't know how many of them are really, 
I mean, they're still climbing the ladder now. I mean, it takes, it takes time. Believe me. I understand that from my own experience. Um, but, uh, think about Brad Perez. I got a picture with him with Darlington when he was, uh, you know, helping out teams out there. Um, you know, and, and, uh, uh, before he went over to, uh, Martin's Motorsports back then. And then I get, you know, uh, we, uh, had the last car logo on his car for the last couple of Sears point races. He makes his first truck start there and his first Xfinity start there. Uh, he's certainly an example of it. Uh, again, Ryan Ellis mentioning him. Um, you know, uh, Kyle Weatherman, uh, and Bailey Curry, uh, with the fact that they were driving for, uh, Mike Harmon's team and they had a, you know, they had uh, some great runs in 2020, uh, Weatherman got Harmon his first ever top 10 at Kentucky and just how exciting that was. Um, and, you know, especially on that particular weekend, cause that had a little bit of both where, uh, Weatherman got a top 10 and then he finished last in the same, at the same track the next day, uh, because of a wreck on the first lap, it just showed like really, you know, how things can change that way. But I mean, it's still, you know, it's, it's still a heck of a story from that weekend. Uh, Josh Balicki comes to mind. You know, I, I run into, I run into him to a, a lot at the track. I ran into him at Phoenix last year and he uh, introduced me to his friends there at the the team's like, Oh, he's, he's the guy that talks about last place uh, finishers. Like who's, who's the, who's the leader this year is actually one thing we do. I talk about, you know, um, uh, kind of balancing the humor and the respect aspect of it here. One thing that we kind of have fun with is uh, actually one of the one of the drivers themselves suggested, hey, if we win the last car championship, which is for getting the most last place finishes, do we get anything like a trophy or something? I'm like, <laughs> oh, man, it's brilliant. So I, my idea was I came up with certificates. And actually, when I go to the championship race, like we have done the last couple of years, I have a whole bunch of certificates and I present them to the drivers there um, that win them. And, and, you know, again, try to just keep things light, especially, you know, teams that are frustrated and they have a difficult part. I think it's. Every, I, all, nearly all cases that I presented these, um, they just kind of, you know, they, you know, they just kind of roll with it, you know, and they've been really good sports about it. I mean, these guys are professional athletes and that's certainly the case. Um, but this leads me to another driver that I probably run into more than any other uh, at these races. And that'd be JJ Yaley. Um, you know, here's a guy that has been in the sport uh, for years. I mean, you know, he, he was a rookie back when, you know, when you were starting to, to watch the sport there and in the cup series driving for Joe Gibbs driven for innumerable different teams over the series. And just this year, I mean, we saw at Atlanta in that range shortened race. He gets a top 10 out there for Rick Ware racing uh, massive, massive for him. I mean, it was just, um, you know, and those are the moments that you really enjoy. So, uh, and that's the fun part is it's, you, you never know who's going to be the hero each week. It could be a young up and comer that's trying to figure things out. Uh, or it could be a veteran driver that, you know, it's been a while since they've had a top 10. Uh, and I think one of my frame of reference for a lot of these is the, is probably my, my most favorite driver I had growing up, which was Jerry Nadeau, uh, first driver I followed up through the ranks at all. Um, seeing him run off course at Sears Point after starting outside pole in 98, following him through when he won this only race at Atlanta in 2000. And then ultimately, unfortunately, his career cut short by that accident at Richmond in 2003. Um, that was a heck of a ride. That's probably the first example I had of, of somebody I followed up the ranks literally from last place to winning, to getting steady rides from there. Um, so there's, there's too many to count kind of goes kind of like your earlier question. You know, there's, it's, it's, there's too many to count, but those are the first ones that, that, that come to mind. 
Man, that's incredible. I mean, just hearing about, you know, following all these people kind of up through the ranks like that's just that's awesome, you know, and and it's and it's cool to hear that, you know, these teams have have, have kind of gotten into into what you're doing. You know, they've, they've kind of gotten into it a little bit. Obviously, they don't like finishing last. I don't think anybody would. But, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where, where that's the case. And obviously, you know. You know, back in the we we talked a bit earlier about you know how big the fields were back in the day. I mean, there were a lot of teams where finishing last was a success because they made the race. I mean, exactly. some teams like if they if they made the race on a weekend, that was a success. So so stuff like that. You know, those are the types of stories that that you highlight in those instances. So, you know, you've you've also spent some time dabbling in YouTube as well. So you know, it, it's it's by no means you know the primary way that you you put your content out there, but you still use it in a lot of forms. So kind of where did YouTube start to become a thing for you in the way that you go about creating that sort of content? I know you've partnered with NASCAR man and all sorts of stuff like that. So kind of where is, where is that all come in? Well, YouTube kind of had its own parallel storyline to the website and almost, almost the exact same time uh, because uh, I started my YouTube account in 2006. Um, so the first videos that are on there are very uh, fuzzy uh, footage that I took off a digital camera when I was sitting in turn two as a fan um, watching that's, the that's serious point. I've seen those videos. So, yep. so those are, yep. That, those are the first videos on the channel and there's, they're still up there. Um, but that was um, uh, it's still, it's still interesting that people still watch those. I still get some comments on them here and there, uh, but that was how it started. It started originally as just kind of playing around with it. I didn't know anything about video editing or recording or any of that stuff. And um, just kind of posted videos from the track and people seemed to like those. And then I was filming. I, I didn't know how to do video capture. So I would hold that same camera to my computer and there's really fuzzy clips of races on there that are also still up on the channel um, that I did for that, for like big moments that I, I enjoyed. I remember at the time there wasn't much footage of Jerry Nadeau's career at the time, um, which, you know, I mean, nowadays with YouTube as big as it is, you got full races on there, but Back in back in I I I you know I I betray the the white in my beard here uh, to talking about just how uh, it used to be, but it did used to be. I had like ten minute videos there, and that was as big as you could make them. And um, you know I I had some old stuff there, and uh, but then the the first uh, video series that I did in two thousand eight, about the same time I was transitioning towards the last car site, uh, was I did starting grids. Um, one of the I'm very outspoken on the quality of broadcasts and the way that the sport is covered because I believe they're the most convincing advertising for the sport. And it's not a redundancy compared to radio broadcasting. I think TV broadcasting uh, is unbelievably important. I hear these stories about AI trying to take it over and people not caring about it. I, I think that risks losing a, a, a uh, turning it into a lost art. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say, I'll say as a broadcaster, someone that's done play by play broadcasting, AI cannot broadcast any nope. sport. At all. Can't, can't, can't do it. Can't do it. No. it it's all because it's all about the, the humanity of it. That's what, what great broadcasting is. You're, you're capturing, you're synthesizing all these statistics and what's happening in front of you and the human element of it and the context of everything that's happening. Um, yeah, you can't program that because it's, you know, it's like it's like, um, yeah, I think it's it's one of the truest human expressions, really. Um, I don't think I'm too exaggerating in, in saying it, but. Um, but one aspect I always loved of those broadcasts was how they introduced the drivers and very similar to the 43 stories thing, um, introducing the starting lineup for these races and how that evolved away from showing car pictures or updating paint schemes 
And this was at a time that it was really critical to do it because that was really when Dale Jr. even had two sponsors and, you know, so paint schemes were changing more regularly. I was really surprised that traditional starting grids didn't really return to prominence. Even today, as much as NBC is credited for having great broadcasts, even they don't really use car pictures in, in theirs, um, which I think is a shame. But um, but that was something I tried to bring back. And and my frame of reference was these are just slideshows. I mean, it's very simple animations. I took a Photoshop class at the time um, and just kind of, you know, kind of learned how to create these different layers and kind of make it somewhat convincing and, and mixing some music into it. And I did that for four years. I did, well, let's see, eight. Yeah, four seasons. Um, I still do them every once in a while. I do them for the Daytona 500. I have them as a bonus to my Patreon. Um, and people always enjoy that. Uh, Patreon.com slash last car on Brock. Um, but they always, um, but uh, those were a lot of fun. That was my first regular video series. Um, they didn't get a lot of hits. I think I tried to add some other elements because of course, once the race starts, who's going to want to go back and see what the starting lineup was. So I like, tried to make it into almost my weekly show where I put like some other clips in or sketches or just anything, just trying everything across the board. Um, and that was my first experience to, to YouTube. But then in um, this overlapped again with uh, when I was in law school. So I kind of set that aside for a couple of years. Um, and I really didn't start making videos again regularly on my channel till really about 2019. Um, so uh, really during the COVID era, like I really kind of kind of went back into making more produced content. And I think a big reason for that was, as he mentioned him, uh, NASCAR man, uh, you know, on his channel there. Um, I was very fortunate to cross paths with him. He, um, you know, had these articles he was writing for racing reference and he, they were very well researched and, and very comprehensive. And uh, he and I started talking and, you know, he didn't have the audio equipment available and I did. And I was like, well, I could do the, I can narrate these scripts for you. Um, and you can make some videos and we'll do that. Um, and you know, he's, he's had, he's written tremendous scripts. I mean, it's really, it really challenged me, uh, to kind of get back in the game as well and kind of make my own scripts. And so I think that's where the challenge has kind of been too. I get a lot of people that stop me and say, oh, I loved it when you, you know, you did this video on uh, Davey Allison, like, you know, for example, the most recent one there, it's like, well, you know, I always try to be as quick as possible and say, look, well, you know, I thank you. I I'm glad you enjoyed my narration, but that was entirely NASCAR man's work there. Like he, he did the writing, he did the editing, he produced it. It's on his channel. Uh, that's a separate thing. So, um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, he and I have very similar approaches to the way we, uh, we, we do our videos. I, I try to lean more into kind of more of a cinematic aspect, although I can't even feel like I take credit for that either. Cause I feel like his Davy Allison video kind of went into that too. So that's, that's kind of the, um, you know, that's kind of the aspect. So I think we both challenge each other and that's, what's been, been great about it. And I think it's really helped both our channels, uh, grow since then. Um, so that's been the, uh, the exciting part, but what we both share is just a, a love for the research of the sport. I always view it as like a fisherman, you know, like, you know, you're, you're, you're the one fisherman for the town and like, you know, I, I could, I could hook this fish and just enjoy it for myself and just be like, oh, isn't this great? Like, here's this obscure thing from NASCAR history. And I'm just going to kind of just obsess on this and not share it with anybody. But it's like, you know, when you have something like that, that's really interesting. You kind of should share it with everybody and just say, look, here's what I found. It's like some of it is stuff that I'm interested in that I know would make a good story. But then a lot of times when I'm doing the research, I find this other stuff. It's like, you wouldn't believe this. You wouldn't believe that this happened and then this happened. And the experience of putting that all together and making it something that people can enjoy, 
Um, especially nowadays where I do think there's a bit of a rift between like, like younger fans and older fans in the sport. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much this has helped uh, try to bridge that gap, but I, I like to, I like to think that it has to a certain extent because, you know, I think that um, I, I don't, I, I don't try to talk over anybody or exclude people from this. I'd like to bring them in. And, you know, I do the 500 days series, for example, on the 2001 series um, season. I mean, there's people now that, you know, were too young to, you know, some that weren't even born during that season and are now experiencing, you know, as, as close as I can replicate, because there's nothing that replaces it as close as I can replicate to what it was like to experience the key moments of what was a massive season in the sports history. Um, and that's what I try to do with all my videos. Exactly. I mean, it, the the context you provide in your videos is very interesting. You talk about 500 days. I mean, you know, talking about all these movements in NASCAR, probably the craziest, silly season in NASCAR history, I think, and, and all that sort of stuff. And even talking about, you know, a video you did with NASCAR, man, the 1988 Daytona 500 or, or Speed Weeks. I mean, telling the story about Tim Richmond, telling the story about debating about spoiler angle and all that sort of stuff about, you know, like, stand, you know, should the, should should they bring the spoilers down should they bring them up to try to make the cars handle better first race without restrictor plates you know providing all this interesting context even even the 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 cart split video um you know which is you know of course not nascar related but you know interesting to provide you know exactly okay what went into the whole cart split and all that sort of stuff and that's just that that's awesome you know it's 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 you know, to, to see just all of that context, you know, really come together. So, you know, just just kind of tell me, you know, what do you envision for the future? You've done all these things. You know, you're you're in a much uh, a different place than you have been. So kind of like what's the what's what's the future hold for you, you feel? Well, I I'd, I think the goal, like anybody would want to, is it would be great to be able to just com- I mean, the, the, the greatest the greatest enemy to doing anything creative, and I mean, you probably agree to this too, uh, is time. There just never seems to be enough time to do, you know, do everything. Um, I'd love to be able to just have this be something uh, sustaining and just be able to commit more time to do it. Uh, you know, cause there's, you know, so I, I, you know, I work five days a week in between. I mostly on the weekends is mostly taken up with updating the website and then whatever time in between, uh, is just putting the videos together. And sometimes a video that probably would take uh, ordinarily maybe a week is probably going to take a month. Um, that's kind of the way it usually goes, which is why I don't have the most regular update schedule uh, that most people have. It's not an unusual situation. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of very talented YouTubers that are um, that uh, work, uh, work very hard uh, outside. I know Slap Shoes in particular, um, you know, works all those hours there with uh, with UPS. So, you know, it's very, you know, difficult uh, circumstances with that. And he produces great, uh, great content as well. Um, but, you know, I think that what I'd like to do is just, you know, just, just keep, uh, just keep producing these. I'm trying to kind of create a moment here where I can produce more regular content. I think that's been the the biggest goal, especially since 2019. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes a different idea comes up when I'm halfway through something else. And, you know, it's like you, you reach that moment where it's like, do I stop working on this and start working on that? Or can I, you know, can I do both or can I, can I, you know, still work on this and then in my free time work on that? Or do I wait till later? You know, that's kind of, those are kind of the the things that, that uh, come up. But, um, you know, I think, I think that's really the kind of the big thing. And I think, you know, I, I got a couple of big stuff uh, projects I'm working on here. Um, as we speak, I'm actually in the process of finishing my second book, which is a biography of Derek Cope. Um, the book is going to be called Cope. We just got that 
um, worked out there with uh, Derek and his wife, Alicia, who have been tremendously helpful on that project. Um, hoping to get that out this winter. Don't have a release date set yet, but we're the the final phases of getting that ready to go. Um, and then the focus is going to be towards, of course, promoting that and doing some work there. And uh, my plan is after that to really kind of take some time off from really writing books and focusing more on the YouTube channel uh, to get it back up to speed and then have it be more competitive with uh, some of the other YouTube creators out there. And it, it won't be back to the way it was in 2008 with the starting grids. I think my live streams have kind of taken the place of that. Uh, as well as my entry list articles on last car. But in terms of just at least, I think that'll free up things to a point where I could produce videos on a more regular basis and um, really just see where it goes from there. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest uh, thing. I've been very fortunate um, that people are supporting the channel. We're getting close to 20,000 subscribers on there. Um, and, you know, we're still kind of a small fish in, in a big pond. Even NASCAR man, um, has, uh, you know, many more, uh, people following on his channel as well. They should be, he, he produces tremendous content. Um, but, uh, just looking to stay in the conversation. I think that's kind of the big thing, which is not too unlike a lot of the drivers I talk about, uh, on the site at the same time. So sometimes art, uh, uh life imitates art or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Stay in the conversation. That's what you're trying to do. You're, you're letting drivers be a part of the conversation and you know what you're, 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 doing all those same things right here. So, uh, you know, a b- big thank you, Brock, for uh, for for coming on Next Gen Creators here. And uh, you know what? We're, uh, you know, really cool to just hear about, you know, you telling the stories that maybe not all people think about. But again, we, we go back. This is why we're doing a podcast like this. Everybody has a story. All these content creators like you have a story and you you have a passion for telling it in, in NASCAR. And, that, and that's really awesome. So, folks, Brock Beard on next gen creators here this week what a conversation that was with brock beard as he told his story about how he came up with the uh, last car on brock that's what took up the majority of the conversation but uh, it was incredible to just hear the passion that he has for what he does and to hear kind of what gave him the inspiration to do what he does talk a bit about his workflow whenever he's at the racetrack or covering and just kind of talk about what it's like to uh cover something that's a little bit interesting and a little bit different from what you'll normally see you don't normally see people covering you know last place finishers or anything like that but uh brock beard talked about that and it was very cool to just hear his passion that he has absolutely for it and uh, you know hearing just a little bit about what he wants to do in the future he mentioned and he's finishing up his uh, a biography with Derek on Derek Cope. And uh, then from there, hopefully doing a little bit more YouTube as time goes on. He makes some really incredible YouTube content as well. Some really deep dives into NASCAR history that just, I mean, I mean it gives, gives some incredible context to everything that he does. And it was really cool to just hear some of his philosophy, some of what kind of goes into the content that he creates and uh, the passion that he has for something very unique that you do not always see people covering in NASCAR. Once again, I'm Joshua Lepowski. Thank you so much, very much for tuning in to this episode of Next Gen Creators, where we highlight the next generation of NASCAR content creators. Joshua Lepowski signing off for now with the Daily Downforce.